Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the LSE. My name is Margot Solomon, and I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the LSE's Center for the Study of Human Rights, on behalf of Professor John Tassioulis, and the YTL Center for Politics, Philosophy, and Law at King's College London. I'm delighted to welcome you to this important book launch. We have with us Professor Leif Wernar, who's done a masterful job of mapping the geopolitics of oil to expose, and I'll quote Leif in the book, how the resource curse ends up cursing us too. This is a book that systematically unearths how we're connected to and indeed complicit in the misery of others and what we can do about it as a global community. This accomplished work on making sense of global economic justice and ultimately the practice of global justice is accessible and it's detailed, it's been thoroughly researched, and it's a deeply informed and interesting piece of work. Perhaps at the heart of this book is a focus on resituating power. Most fundamentally, it gives practical expression to the codified right of peoples to enjoy and utilize their natural resources. So mapping the cross-border socio-political violence that oil invites leads Professor Winar to proposing a feasible alternative with his clean trade policy that's developed in this book. And I say feasible because this book is dedicated to a viable alternative to the status quo. And when I say viable, I don't mean partial or compromised. It took Leif 10 years to write this book. And the normative assumptions and the solutions it advocates, and that we'll hear about tonight, were tested against the views predispositions and disciplines of a range of academics and practitioners across uh, the world, including some quite hard-nosed realists, I would imagine. It's terrific to see how the U.S. mainstream press has picked up on this work. There's been op-eds in, uh, in, in a range of outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, um, and others. Leif recently spoke at the UK Parliament. I understand he's on his way to Princeton uh, and he's doing um, uh, a, 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 making a concerted effort to expose the findings of this book and to engage people with uh, this important work. So it's really our good fortune to have Leif with us tonight to explore the book's themes and I think to push us to think harder and to expect more of ourselves, and to expect more of this world. So before I take a few minutes and, and introduce our distinguished speaker, allow me, if I may, just a few um, uh, points on housekeeping. This event tonight is being um, audioed and uh, video recorded, and if everything goes well, uh, they should be posted online within a few days. There's a Twitter hashtag. Is it on the screen? There it is, hashtag LSE Blood Oil. So feel free to, to tweet if that's the kind of thing you do. 
Um, but do please otherwise turn off your phones uh, on, or turn them onto, onto silent. We'd also request that um, nobody other than the official photographers uh, and video, videos take, uh, take photos, uh, and that's uh, of us and of the screen uh, as well. So what we'll have is, as is tradition here at the LSE, have Leif speak for around 40 or 45 minutes, and then we'll leave plenty of time for discussion, for questions and answers, for comments from you, and I, and I look forward to that, and I know that, uh, that Leif does as well. Immediately following uh, the talk, which will end promptly at 8 o'clock, there'll be a book signing. For those of you who want to buy the book, Lake will stay and, uh, and, and sign copies. Um, and there'll also be a reception. Everybody's warmly welcome to join us on the fifth floor of the old building, but we'll be guided there. So uh, do come along if you're, if you're free. We have with us Professor Leif Winar. He holds the Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London. He holds a PhD in philosophy from Harvard University. He's been a visiting professor at all all sorts of uh, preeminent institutions, a very impressive list, a few of them, Princeton, Stanford, Australian National University, as well as the Carnegie Council on Ethics uh, and International uh, Affairs. I'll keep it brief uh, so that we can hear more from Leif, but allow me to say that it's with great pleasure that the LSC and King's College London have the opportunity to host this launch. And with that, Leif, I'll give you the floor. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Margot, and I'm really grateful to Margot and the LSC and also to King's, my home institution, for hosting this talk. And thank you very much for coming out on a cold March night to hear a talk on something called blood oil. Now, I imagine some of you are here because you're looking for a topic that's cheerier than looking for the early returns to the American presidential primaries, and I'm glad to be able to cheer you up a little bit from that set of topics. You might expect that with a book like Blood Oil, I would be talking mostly about the extreme injustice that our governments in the West have inflicted on countries like Iran and Iraq for many decades, or about the reprehensible actions of our oil companies, both overseas and here at home. Now, the book does tell those stories for people who don't know them, but you're a sophisticated crowd. So I am just going to expect that you and I, if we talked, would mostly agree on those things. We would agree about the terrible injustices and hypocrisy of our own governments and companies for all of these years, and that is not what I want to talk about tonight. Tonight, I want to talk about something new, a deeper story, a story that hasn't yet been told. Tonight, we're going to go beneath the headlines and talk about power, how we ourselves are unwillingly a source of absolute power that causes terrible violence and suffering and injustice in our world. The world's problems today are not only our rulers, but also our rules, the rules of power that run the world. Tonight, I'm going to explain how there's one archaic rule of power 
that we've always taken for granted, but has devastating effects on the lives of people in places like the Middle East and Africa, and which is causing serious instability that threatens our security as well. Tonight, we're going to be philosophers and look at the bigger picture of power in our world and how we might, we might be able to change the rules that run the world to make our future more peaceful and more just and more secure. So let's get our philosophers' eyes open and take a look from a different angle. Let's take a look at the West's worst foreign threats and crises over the last generation. As we go through these threats and crises, I'm going to ask if you can see that they all have one thing in common. So what do we see when we pick up the paper today? We see ISIS with their beheadings and their atrocities. We see Bashar al-Assad dropping barrel bombs on his own people. We see a refugee crisis coming out of Syria and Putin intensifying it with his own bombing. Eighteen months ago, it was Putin pushing aggressively into Ukraine. Before that, it was who? Leif, use the mic. Saddam Hussein. And before that, well, Al-Qaeda, probably behind 7-7, right up in Tavistock Square where I live, and also certainly behind 9-11. Before that, Gaddafi, behind everyone from the Lockerbie bombers to the IRA. And if you go all the way back, the genocide in Darfur with its terrible loss of life. Earlier still, the Iranian sponsorship of terrorism for the last 30 years in its region and around the world. And if you're as old as I am, you would remember the Soviet Union surging ahead of the West in the nuclear arms race in the 70s and 80s. To get to the bottom of all of these threats and crises, we need to follow the money. They all have one thing in common. These threats and crises that we've been facing for a generation all have one thing in common. They all come from countries that export a lot of oil. But where did the money come from for all those men? Those armies and missiles and propaganda and bombs are expensive. Where did the money come from for there to pay for their violence? Well, the money comes, of course, ultimately from us, from us consumers, when we buy petrol, for example, at the pump. And not only at the pump. We pay for oil whenever we buy goods almost anywhere. So, let me just ask. Someone tell me, what's, what's the last thing you bought? What's the last thing you paid money for? Call out, please. A cocktail. A cocktail. A cocktail. A cocktail. This time of day? 
<laughs> All right, a cocktail. Good. Well, the cocktail was certainly... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... It depends on what kind of cocktail you had, but the cocktail was certainly brought here by transportation that was powered by oil. 90% of the world's transportation fleet runs on oil. Almost every car, truck, ship, and plane is now oil-powered. Someone else give me an example. The last thing you bought. Crisps. The crisps were grown with... The potatoes were grown with nitrogen that was extracted by oil. If it was some tech that you happened to buy, then the plastic was oil. Everything that's plastic is basically oil. Almost everything we buy every day is either made with oil, made from oil, or transported by oil. And that means that whenever we go to the pump, we may be sending money to men who consider us to be their enemies. And whenever we go to the checkout, we might be financing the spread of ideologies that are hostile to our way of life. The men behind the threats and crises of the last generation have gotten trillions of dollars, pounds, and euros from us over the years. And why? Why are those men getting our money? Well, my main message tonight is it's because of one bad old law that's been around for ages. It's defined business as usual for centuries. We take it entirely for granted, but it also drives authoritarianism and conflict and extremism, and we now need to change it if we possibly can. This is our law that says we will buy natural resources from whoever in a foreign country can control them by force. This is our law that says, essentially, might makes right. So, for example, when Saddam Hussein took over Iraq in a violent coup, we started buying Iraq's oil from him. And then years later, when ISIS took over those same wells, the world started buying Iraq's oil from ISIS. Now, that's the way the world has worked for a long time. We take it entirely for granted. But when you think about it, that rule makes no sense. If you know it, think of the Shell Station down by Old Street, roundabout. If an armed gang took over that Shell Station, no one thinks that English law should give the bystanders the right to buy the petrol from the armed gang, but when Gaddafi took over Libya in a coup, we started buying Libya's oil from him. And then years later in the Arab Spring, when rebels took over those same wells, the world started buying Libya's oil from them. Now, oil is the big resource, as you know. It's the world's most valuable traded good. It causes most of the big problems in the world. But might makes right is our rule, not only for oil, but for other natural resources, too. So in my smartphone, in your smartphone, there might be a small piece of the Congo. And as you may know, there's been a terrible war going on in the Congo for many years. At least a million combat-related deaths, maybe deaths reaching Holocaust levels, and militias that have used violence against women to such an extreme level that the Congo has been called 
the worst country in the world to be a woman. It could be that in my smartphone there's a small piece of metal that came from the Congo where it was coercively extracted by some terrible militia. But when that metal got all the way through the world's supply chains, I own every molecule of this phone 100% free and clear under the laws of the United Kingdom, and the police and courts of this country will defend my rights to every molecule against everybody else. Might there somehow makes right here, and it's because our law says that violence will turn into property. Might makes right puts us into a legal business relation with men of violence overseas, and for decades they've been causing a lot of trouble with our money. Because we say that whoever can control resources by force will get a lot of our money. The most coercive men are fighting to get to the top, and the ones at the top are using the money to stay in power. One way to see how this bad old law incites oppression and violence is again to imagine that some country used it internally. So imagine that, for example, New York State declared might makes right for New Jersey. Imagine that the New York legislature declared tomorrow that whoever could seize goods by force in New Jersey would get the legal right to sell them to New Yorkers, and the New York police and courts would defend those property rights 100%. If New York declared might makes right for New Jersey, what do you think New Jersey would look like after a few years? You'd see what? Kingpins and armed gangs, turf wars, just the kind of things we actually do see on a much larger scale in resource-rich countries because all of our countries actually do say might makes right for the resources of other countries. Since we use might makes right for resources, since we reward control of oil with such big money, armed groups can use that money to start or escalate a war, as we see in Iraq and in Libya. Authoritarian regimes can use the money to buy the muscle and the loyalty that they need to stay in power. And if it's the Saudi regime, that gets the money for the oil, then they can, as they have for decades, spread this extreme, intolerant version of Islam around the world by funding madrasas and study centers and mosques. And it's that version of extreme Islam that we now see mutating into jihadi terrorism, not only in the Middle East and Asia, but also on the continent, and maybe even here. So here is the big picture point. Oil is the largest source of absolute power in our world. Because we use this rule, if some group can control resource-rich territory, it's like a huge funnel of cash comes down into their hands from the world, and they can use that cash however they want. 
the power is unchecked. Unlike foreign aid, that cash comes with no strings attached. Unlike bank loans, it never has to be paid back. And of course, that power is entirely unaccountable to the people of the country who have to watch while their natural assets are sold off beyond their control. You've heard that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but actually, it's not the corruption that's the big problem. It's true that the authoritarians who have a lot of oil money are mind-bendingly corrupt, but it's actually not corruption which is the big problem. The absolute power of authoritarians allows them to stay in power through divide and rule and imposing an ideology, and it allows armed groups to fight for power through terror and attacks. The unchecked power of oil is a large source of the oppression and instability we see in major oil-producing countries. And the tools that we outsiders have to try to check the absolute power of those who control oil are clumsy at best. Think about what we can do to try to control the power of oil. We can form an alliance with the authoritarian as we've done with the Shah or Saddam or Gaddafi or the Saudis. How's that worked out? We can take military action. We can go to war as we did against Saddam twice, first Gulf War, second Gulf War. We can take Gaddafi out. We can cover the region with drones. How's that working out? Sanctions on Russia, Iran, Iraq, Sudan, Syria. How's that? These are our main tools for checking the power of oil. They're expensive. They have terrible consequences. And they often don't work well. Here is the verdict of our use of these tools by the director of the CIA giving testimony in Congress a couple weeks ago. Violence and the instability in the Middle East is the worst that it's been in 50 years, and it's a region facing unprecedented bloodshed. For 40 years, our efforts to check the power of oil from outside have largely failed, and it's produced a group of oil exporting states that are either aggressive or unstable, or both. And I'm very sorry to say that it looks like things are going to get even worse. There's an arc of oil in the world that runs from Russia through the Middle East into Africa. That's where most of the world's oil is. And the countries in red are the authoritarian or failed states that produce a lot of resources. Unfortunately, the southern half of that arc is now also the area that, because of climate change, scientists tell us will become hotter and thirstier as it becomes more crowded and also more hungry. And that is likely to mean that arc of oil is going to become even more unstable than it has been. So 
The headlines of our lifetimes have shown the power of oil and what it's done to countries that produce it under business as usual with might makes right. And if we thought the last 40 years were bloody and scary, the next 10 may be truly challenging. Is there any hope for change? It's going to be tough. The world uses a lot of oil, and even as we transition away from fossil fuels, oil is going to be with us for a while. Really, oil is everywhere. It could be in your glasses, my shoes. You could have smeared it on your face this morning. It could be enhancing your sex life. Oil is everywhere in almost everything we buy. And the rule that we use is highly entrenched, very powerful actors are in favor of this rule, not least the authoritarian regimes like Saudi that get their money because of it. After looking at this for 10 years, I think that the world is actually much more frightening but also much more hopeful than I thought when I started. Look at the problem we're having here. There's this bad, old rule which makes no sense from an ordinary perspective, which is giving us escalating crises and threats. The problem is that oil is a source of unaccountable power. We can't control it from the outside. From a political science standpoint, the solution to this problem has to be clear. The solution to the problem that we're seeing, the only source of checking the power of oil and other resources, it just has to be an empowered citizenry of the resource-rich country. <coughs> the only source of checking the power of resources has to be the people themselves in the country where the resources are located. They're right there, living on the ground. If you want a quick bit of evidence for that, let me give you this. Where's oil been bad for a country? Where's it been good for a country? Oil's been good for countries when the oil money came in while the government was accountable to the people. Think of Norway. Lots of oil money. The people controlled the government enough to make the government use that money for public goods, goods for the people. Think of Botswana with its diamonds, the miracle of Africa. Again, the people were in control of the government enough so that the resource money went to the people instead of the countries where resources have caused trouble, where the money has gone to a strong man or armed groups to cause more oppression and violence. So the source... You need the mic up. Or use the... The source of accountability over resources can only be the people of the country. And I'm glad to say this is where the talk turns a little more hopeful. I know it's been grim so far, but actually there is at least the grounds for hope. Fortunately, the world has already agreed 
at least in principle, to a better modern principle than might makes right for resources. And that is nothing but the principle that a country belongs to its people. The principle that it's the people and not power who should have the ultimate right to decide what happens to the land, including its natural resources. The principle of popular resource sovereignty. Now, all that principle means in practical terms is that a government should have least basic accountability for what it does with the country's resources. The test for popular resource sovereignty is just can the people find out what's happening to their resources and can a majority change what the government is doing without fearing for their safety or their lives? I'm not saying that popular sovereignty is great. I mean, it is great. But I'm saying that this is the only solution to the unaccountable power of oil. And this is a principle that's already widely believed, certainly in our own countries in the West. This is a principle very familiar around here, from Magna Carta to the Chartists to the suffragists in America, Declaration of Independence, Lincoln's first inaugural. But the really hopeful thing about our position in the 21st century is that this principle is already accepted at least as an idea across the world. The whole world now speaks the language of popular resource sovereignty. So leaders around the world habitually say the oil belongs to the people. And it's not only Tony Blair and George W. Bush, it's also the Parliament of Norway and even Ayatollah Khamenei. All these leaders stand up and say the oil belongs to the people. Large majorities of individuals, when polled, say that they favor popular sovereignty as a system of government, even in the Arab states and even in the People's Republic of China. And maybe most hopeful of all, as a result of the great struggles for self-determination in the 20th century, almost every country has already signed a major treaty that just says in Article 1, this, all peoples may for their own ends freely dispose of their natural wealth and resources. It's sitting right there in the big human rights treaties. Insofar as the world has heroes like Gandhi and Mandela, it's been heroes of self-determination, and they've left this legacy of the principle in the documents that 98% of the human beings in the world live in a country that's already ratified one of these treaties. So public opinion is there. The leaders already speak the right language. The treaties are already signed. That's hopeful. The whole world talks the talk. The world has substantially agreed on a better principle for resource trade, but that's only at the level of ideas. As you know, it's not at the level of reality. None of our countries have put that principle into practice. But what if they did? What if our countries did what they said? 
they believe in. After looking at this problem for all these years, my conclusion is that our best hope for getting out of this very difficult spot that we're in is actually for our countries to change our own laws internally so that they align with our principles. In this case, our best hope is not the hard power of invasions and sanctions. Our best hope actually is ending the hypocrisy and aligning our laws with our own ideals, running our own countries by our own principles. So let me just offer you now this plan for us to discuss. This plan will have costs. It's going to be hard. It will not magically change the world into a world of peace and justice. But it, I think it actually is the best path we have to get away from the trouble that's coming. The plan is for our countries to make our own principle into our own law. Okay, we believe that a country belongs to its people. If we believe in that principle, then when a country's resources are sold off by someone who's not even minimally accountable to the people, an authoritarian or armed group, those resources are stolen from the people. Under that principle, over 50% of the world's traded oil right now is literally being stolen from the people of the country where it's extracted. If Britain made that principle into law, we would no longer take ourselves to have the right to buy oil from those who were selling it without any possible authorization of the people. And on that day, we would no longer be in legal business relationships with the oppressive and aggressive actors overseas who are causing their people and our people so much trouble. So the plan is for countries deliberately, peacefully, and responsibly to taper off imports of authoritarian oil and also conflict minerals. We will make new laws imposed on our own people, on our own soil. Our soldiers can stay home this time. If we made our principle into our law, we would say, who rules in Saudi Arabia is none of our business. But right now, we believe that the Saudi regime qualifies for none of our business. And the same for other authoritarian countries in the Middle East and Russia and also most of the big African producers. Which countries should do this? Well, honestly, right now, I'd be happy if any country did it. But I think the most effective path would be for Britain and America to do it first. Britain and America can lead the West out of business with authoritarians and armed groups. Our countries are, after all, the historic homes of popular sovereignty. So these are 
principles very familiar here. But honestly, it's also because our two countries have had such difficult historical relations with the oil-producing countries of the world, and especially in the Middle East, that we would be the countries most effective if we changed our own law. Our two countries have had dreadful relations with these countries, starting with our original sin in the post-war era, which was when our two countries helped to overthrow the democratically elected government of Iran and put a friendly authoritarian in place. Our two countries have had the most trouble history with oil states. So imagine if we actually did the right thing. Imagine if we actually did say, look, we are going to get out of business with the men that are causing such suffering and injustice in these countries. We are no longer going to give our money to the men of blood over there. I'm just going to ask you to consider the day when our countries did that. In my view, that's the most that we can peacefully do to encourage the movements for democratic reform that are present in all oil-producing countries but are currently being overwhelmed by autocrats and extremists and which are getting very little inspiration from us. If our countries can lead the West away from authoritarian oil, it will then be up to the big Asian importers to decide whether they want to announce the same thing. It'll be up to China to decide whether they want to keep importing authoritarian oil forever or if they just want to announce, and all they have to do is announce, that at some point in the future they will also stop buying stolen oil. That's, of course, up to the Chinese. If they decide not to go with the West, then they can bear the brunt of the resource curse, the oil curse, for the next 10 to 20 years. That will be unfortunate, but at least we'll be spared the worst effects of the instability of the Middle East, since we'll not be getting energy there, and the Chinese will learn the hard way that better governance in oil-producing countries is critical for the security and prosperity of their own people. Okay, so it's challenging, but let me give you two quick, quick grounds for hope that this could be possible. A window of opportunity might be opening. I know I've been talking for a while, but here, if you have to take home one message from this, let's talk. The West does not need authoritarian oil anymore. The West has enough energy. It does not need to import oil and gas or coal from authoritarians anymore. Even without the transition to alternatives, which we should definitely do, we don't need that energy. And with the low price of oil right now, the actors who would resist reforms like the authoritarians are much weaker than they have historically been. You've seen it in the papers. They are really feeling the pinch. 
And let me just put in a plug for this website, which we put up called Clean Trade. If you go to cleantrade.org, you'll see there's lots of things that we as consumers can do as, uh, to get us out of, to encourage our leaders to get us out of business with authoritarians and armed groups. There's boycotts. There's an index of which oil companies do more business with authoritarian regimes. And there's a declaration of principles that you can t- sign, which will tell our governments what laws that they could pass to get us out of business with those men of blood. Now, I know this is a big proposal, and you're going to have questions about how it's going to work. Let me imagine two futures, one where we do it and don't do it, and one where we do. If we stick with business as usual, we will continue to fill these oil-producing countries with our financial energy. And we will continue to empower the authoritarians and the armed groups and the extremists. And what will business as usual give us five years from now? What is that arc of instability going to look like in five years if we give it trillions more dollars to whoever has the most guns? When we wake up tomorrow, we'll have to have a policy towards those countries. If we say that might makes right, What's going to happen to the people of these countries? People of these countries want what? Opportunities and recognition and freedom. They are going to struggle against their regimes. If we keep sending our money to whoever can be most violent, we may force them into armed resistance and extremism, and that's where instability is going to come from, and we will only have these clumsy tools to try to contain the results. So, if we keep with business as usual, what is Al-Qaeda going to look like? Or ISIS in five years? What's ISIS 2.0 going to do? Fly armed drones with explosives through the window of parliament? Paris-style attacks on Russell Square? If you talk to the police, we just don't know how to stop Paris-style attacks. These drive-bys, they're so easy to do. We don't know how to stop them. The other future is if our countries in the West actually did change their own laws to stand on principle. That's the future which might get us better progress. If we stood by our own principles, that would be the most we could possibly do to encourage the reformers in these countries who are outside the palaces and often inside the palaces looking for a window of opportunity to push forward more gradual, peaceful, constitutional reforms. So two futures. Which one would we take? You all are super sharp. I'm sure you've seen that there are a dozen challenges for us going to that future, and I've been studying this for 10 years, so I'll try to come up with answers to your questions. 
let me just try to answer finally at the very end the one question that I get the most as I've gone around trying to say we should run our laws by our principles. And that's just, we can't possibly hope to make big change. And it does seem grim when you look at the newspaper. But the encouraging thing about this story is that the world has overcome this bad old rule of might makes right many times before. And this is the last thing I'm going to leave you with. The last big picture of our history. 300 years ago, might makes right was the world's rule not only for natural resources, but for almost everything, including human beings. 300 years ago, the world's rule for human beings was whoever could control them by force can sell them to us. And under that rule, the European empire sent 12 million Africans through the terrible Middle Passage where the survivors were legally bought as property, might made right. And not only for human beings. Think that. 300 years ago, if one country could capture territory from another country, it got the legal right to rule that territory. If one country could dominate the people of another country, it got the legal right to rule those people. That was colonialism. Even within a country, the international rule was whoever had the most power could do almost anything they wanted to the people of the country. A sovereign could install a racist apartheid regime or engage in ethnic cleansing, even genocide. All of those things used to be legal because might made right. But look, this is the most hopeful message of all. All of those things that I've mentioned have been overturned. These are some of the most inspiring victories of our history, the things you teach to a child. The slave trade, territorial conquest, colonialism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, genocide. These are all now violations of international law, and we've replaced those laws with laws requiring respect for human rights and the self-determination of peoples. Now, you know that just because we have better new laws doesn't mean we've magically abolished power, right? Power still violates our new laws much too often, but at least we're on the right side of history when it comes to things like the slave trade and colonialism and apartheid. We're still on the wrong side of history when it comes to might makes right for natural resources, which is zombied on somehow into the 21st century. But the progress we've made in the last 300 years has been turning what used to be respectable practices of violence into widely reviled crimes. We might be able to do it again and stand by our own principle, which we believe that all peoples may, for their own ends, freely dispose of their natural wealth and resources. For our own sake, for the sake of the people in resource-rich countries, for the sake of the stability of the international system, it could be that we should now take this next step towards freedom and justice together. Thank you very much.
Great. Thank you very much, Leif. And that leaves us a good 35 minutes for comments and questions. I note that uh, in that terrific exposition, there may still be questions about how we go about doing this. What are the five or ten points? What would we have to do first? Um, But let's see if someone poses that in their own way. I'm going to take three questions at a time, if that's okay with you, Leif, and I'd be grateful if people could introduce themselves. Uh, The gentleman there had his hand up first. There's a roving mic. Please wait for it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Heide Rida from Bain & Company. Uh, Two very brief questions. One is, uh, have you any idea about how much this would uh, cost, i.e. what would be the effect on the oil price and the supply-demand equation? Secondly, why do you think it is this hasn't happened yet? Many of these countries have gotten away with much worse stuff than just selling their oil. And the fact that they buy weapons from the West or, or other things makes that they get away with it. So what do you think are the key drivers and how would you address those of, of them getting away with it, basically? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, cost and why we haven't seen change yet. There's a hand right in front. I'll come to the other side of the room shortly. Oh, lots of people here. I haven't turned around yet. I see you now. I see you now. Please. Hi. Um, so both Britain and the U.S. have obviously for a few years now pursued a, a policy of trying to reduce dependence on foreign oil by, uh, some would say, at a, at a great cost to their own domestic supply by drilling in, in deep seas or Alaska or, or fracking shale. Surely if we were to seriously consider boycotting countries that, that expose this policy of, uh, of, as you say, that would exacerbate this problem, no? Okay. Question on dependency. Right over there in the back with the grey shirt. Thank you. Please uh, tell us who you are. Hello. Um, my name's Techie and thank you for your talk. Um, I just wanted to maybe give you a chance to expand on... Hello. Sorry. On, um, <laughs> If you've done 10 years of research, I imagine that you must have a lot of information about the voice from the South, and that's probably something that wasn't communicated in your talk. Um, You mentioned that this ideal of principles is one that is accepted by people all throughout the world, but I'm thinking, what about those who aren't fortunate enough to have the luxury of those ideals, who don't know where they're getting their bread from tomorrow, who can't put their children in education, who are living in the DRC um, subject to rape? Um, And one quick other point along those lines is what happens to the little boys in the DRC? I know more about coal town than I do oil, but what happens to those little boys who go down in the mines when all of a sudden we're not accepting the coal town? They can't have that small um, wage um, to pay for things. And I know that it's a horrible situation, and maybe I'm being devil's advocate by making you answer that, but I think how do we work that that situation out? There'll be such a big loss of life. Um, I guess that's something that wasn't alluded to in your talk that I'd Thank like you. you to expand on. Okay. A number of elements in terms of impact on and voices from the South. Should we start with those, Leif? Thanks very much. Why haven't we seen change just because we haven't seen the problem in this way before? I mean, it does take some some people to see the problem in a new way. I mean, it, it took someone to create the concept of sexual harassment, for example. That was not a thing when I was a kid. That, there was just no such thing. And someone had to see it and invent the concept and then make the law, and now it's a thing. 
it's not like sexual harassment never goes on anymore, but at least we have laws against it. We've made a big change, and it's better than it was. The cost is important, and I'm going to take the um, exasperating the problems of supply, too. This actually is more encouraging than I, than I expected when I started, and it's getting more encouraging all the time. So I asked Nick Butler, who you might know is the energy columnist for the FT, I asked him, how long would it take, how much would it cost for the West to get off authoritarian oil? And he said, well, what countries? And I showed him the list. And he said, really? He said, Saudi, Qatar, Russia, Algeria, Angola. And I said, yeah. So he thought about it for a while. And he came back and he said, North America, no problem at all. It would take a few months and it would be almost costless North America doesn't get that much authoritarian oil anymore. The supplies would just switch around. It's very easy. Europe, as you can imagine, is not quite that easy, right? Europe is heavily dependent, especially on Russian oil and gas. Butler thought it would take a number of years, maybe five years, and it would cost tens of billions of dollars, which is serious money, no doubt about it. I mean, Maybe not as much as developing a new European fighter jet, but it's a, it's a lot of money. So this would have, a, this would have serious costs. No doubt about it, it would have costs. But we don't need the energy anymore. The world has lots of energy. Even as we transition away from fossils, we don't need to buy from that country. I'm just not going to say that. The economics of this are not the problem. <laughs> the politics of this is the problem. And this is a big political change. That's where the real crunch is in this. And let me just say about Voices from the South before getting into the DRC, I'm really happy that these are Nigerian hands on the book. This is from a protest in Bodo after a big oil spill. And I'm happy about that because I've learned so much from talking to people, especially in Nigeria. But I have a principle that I am a citizen of the U.S. and the U.K., and I should only speak for the people of my country. The problems of Nigeria are for the Nigerian people to work out. The problems of the Congo are for the Congolese people to work out. I want us to change our laws and policies so that we stop damaging those countries with our laws and policies. I want us to draw back the terrible things that we're doing with our own laws that keep the people of those countries from getting more control over their countries. So I don't speak for the South. The people of the South, of course, have to solve the problems in their country. All I can do is advocate for my own countries, not to do state building, but to to stop state raising, to stop giving money to the violent and corrupt actors who are keeping a lot of these people from being more free and being more fed and so on. There are going to be transition costs for sure. Artisanal mining is a terrible thing. The young boys who goes down and goes down in those mines in the DRC, they have a terrible job. But it's true that if they're not going to get the money for that, it's going to be tough and there's no doubt about it. In order to do this, you really have to think that in the medium term, certainly the long term, the people of the country will be better off if the people who are attacking them have less money. Just imagine the day when no one can make money off of the Congo's minerals until the government of the Congo is minimally accountable to its people. And that includes Rwanda and Uganda. No matter Imagine the day where no one can make money off that country until the governance is better. That's the best that outsiders can do to try to get change there. Thank you. Okay.
Yes, the woman right here in the front, third row. Thank you for a very interesting and uplifting could you, talk. Can you introduce yourself, please? Vasaka Fernanda, healthcare worker. Um, I want to ask a specific question, actually, about Nigeria, with whom we have the West... Britain has had a lot of interaction from the 1980s and 90s through NGOs. Has there been any even incremental betterment of the management of resources that you can factually give us details regarding the use of Nigeria's wealth for their own people within that engagement? The woman in green, or with her hand up? Yeah. Um, hello, my name is Olua Shilm, and I'm a year 12 student uh, from Camp 12 Girls. And um, I just want to say that uh, what you said about, like, uh, it's a problem between the West and, like, the Middle East. The world is just a lot more than just the Middle East and the West. And, like, how do you feel about, like, industrializing, like, nations and their economies? I'm sorry, you f- did you hear that? Can you say that again? How do you feel about industri- industrializing, like, nations and their economies who believe that the only way to um, imitate the growth of the West is to follow the archetype of, like, how the West industrialized? So what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to use green energy? Or, like, do you think that they can use their own energy to become as big as China or even, like, America? That's my question. Okay, good. Replicating the West, and uh, let's stick with this one, and then I'll come back over. That's fine. Anyone? Oh, God, me? (laughs) There you go. Thank you. Um, My name is Sophia. Um, I'd like to ask, there's two points. One is, obviously, the, or at least I think so, the environmental side of it, and just what's the sort of tying it to that and whether you would like to elaborate more on that because I think besides the authoritarian regime, the impact that the West is having through its per capita oil consumption compared to other countries is also awful and causing awful problems. And then the other is, I can't give more specifics, um, and I know this is a somewhat controversial case, but recently the UK passed a law which would, and this is like the less controversial topic, where it would prevent public bodies from boycott, divest, and sanction kind of policies towards Israel. So, for example, local councils that had decided, for example, not to buy products from factories built on illegal settlements, settlements decided illegal by the UN, um, which I think has some parallels with this and whether you think that's encouraging in the context of what's being proposed here. Let's go with those three. Great. Thanks very much. There has been a lot of improvement in Nigeria. I'm really optimistic about Nigeria. I got back from Lagos and Ibadan not too long ago. And there's a new government, and it's the first democratic transition of power, and things are still tough, and the country is messed up. But people say that whole ministries have sprung into existence because Bahari is expecting that people will actually do their jobs. Nigeria is a country of extraordinary potential, and if the people could get more power over their government, it it would be the most amazing country. What's 
problem is that the oil money gets poured into the top of government and part of it's used for coercion, but most of it is used for this sort of pyramid of patronage that comes down where those gatekeepers take some money and then dribble a little bit more down to get the loyalty of the people below and almost none of it gets down to public goods for the people and things like power and education and even security are real problems. Nigeria is slowly, I think, going through its democratic transition. And, of course, 99% of that is the actions of Nigerians. If I could put in a plug for one group uh, in Nigeria who's done tremendous work, it's SDN, the Stakeholders Democracy Network down in the Delta um, in Port Harcourt, who's done fantastic work in building community uh, resistance to the injustice that's been going down there. So I'm really hopeful for Nigeria. But, of course, as you know, there's a, there's a long... There's a long, sorry, there's a long way to go. Um, I'm sorry, that was a Nigeria question. What should we do about developing countries? Should they emulate the West? Again, I'm, I'm not going to say much about that. It's entirely up uh, to the developing countries to determine their strategy for development. Um, and the environment piece of that is a huge piece. So what about the environment piece and this program? Well, think about what happened in Paris in the fall. What are the two big stories coming out of Paris in the fall? One was the climate change agreement, which was at least a little bit more hopeful than the one before, and the other was those terrible terrorist attacks. We have to do both of these things at once. We have to handle both of these things at once. We have to take care of uh, climate at the same time as we work on the spread of violent extremism. If we solve one of those problems without the other, we're not going to be happy as a race. So when you put petrol into your car, you're doing two things. You're going to be putting carbon into the atmosphere, and your money is going to be heating up the climate, political climate in somewhere like the Middle East or Africa. We can't know whether the carbon that goes into your car is going to end up causing the next Hurricane Sandy or whether the money that goes out of your wallet is going to be end up you know, buying a lash that's going to be used on some Twitter user in Saudi Arabia. But we do know the things that we have to do to end these problems. We have to decarbonize the energy supply. And the best way, actually, to stop buying blood oil is just to start buying less oil overall. So we have to do both of those things at once. And if you're an environmentalist, let me just offer this to you and see if you can do anything with it. Take that fact I gave you a few minutes ago. 50% of the world's oil right now, traded oil, is stolen under the most basic rules of the free market system. These are not facts that even the most hard-bitten capitalists can ignore. All market actors care about the property right, protection of property rights, investors, companies, governments. Under strict market principles, 50% of the world's oil is being stolen. It's stranded assets because it can't rightly be sold right now. If you can use that in an environmental campaign on stranded assets, all I can say is let's work together. Let's work together for our common, our common causes. We have to do both things at once. That's it. Okay. I'm going to um, come to you all in one minute. I'm going to pose a, a quick question, and then I'll take three others so that I don't rob you of your question. Uh, the latter part of the book offers direct policy solutions. 
Let's allow these people to. I won't take it personally. (laughs) The latter chapters develop a clean trade policy. And I know, having watched you work on this book and having uh, attended some of the uh, roundtable discussions and indeed uh, having read the book, that you've thought through with great care how this might practically take shape. And I'm wondering if you can just spend a few minutes when we get back to the answer bit giving us five or six or seven bullet points about what this would uh, require in direct and practical terms, at least in the initial stages. Okay, over to you. Let's see the hands of the gentleman right here. He's had his hand up for a while. Thanks. Uh, my name is Christoph Robin. I'm here. Can you so, give us your affiliation also, everybody, please? Affiliation. Well, uh, I work a... for Amnesty International, but I speak in my name. Yes. So I totally back your overall message, but uh, I'm a bit concerned about the long-term perspective, and I have been very surprised when you said that uh, the United States could transition to not using authoritarian oil anymore that easily. I, I'm super surprised because I think that the United States have a huge consumption of oil, and I assume that you say that because you assume that the United States could swap to uh, less authoritarian sources of oils uh, quite quickly. But what will happen once those sources are exhausted and the only oil which is left will be in other countries which are more authoritarian? Is your proposal for them to switch to completely uh, non-fossil energy supply? Or do you have another idea? Thank you. Thank you. And why don't you go back there while we're here? Yeah. Uh, in the black shirt with the glasses. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm Oliver, and I'm a student. Uh, what do you think about the, the rise in American shale oil and uh, the fracking that's going on in North America? What do you think the effect of that is going to be on these sources of blood oil, apart from the obvious fall in the oil price recently? Mm, thank you. The woman over here. Against the, the pillar. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jane Cooper, basically global health and social psychology. That was really interesting. Thank you. I see it as a piece of the jigsaw. Um, I think my great interest is whether the species will evolve the social mechanisms it needs to survive this century. And I think you've done valuable work in putting a finger on one of those hidden assumptions or habits that has enormous consequences but is never sufficiently examined. Um, I think the arms trade is perhaps a very linked aspect. That might be your next 10 years, perhaps. Um, But I think what strikes me most of all listening to you is that in big picture terms, you're arguing for a return to moral values as a basis for the mechanisms of the species um, rather than market-based approaches. And I just wonder whether there isn't a little bit of an ideological resistance there that you're perhaps not examining sufficiently. After all, um, my favorite magazine is The Lancet. The editor calls for an awareness of global citizenship in everybody and also for planetary health. Um, To me, fossil fuel divestment is a complete no-brainer. 
albeit not one that's as yet been ex- accepted by the LSE, I think. Um, but we've seen institutions such as the Wellcome Trust, when questioned on, on its investment in fossil fuels, actually react in quite a strange way, as though it's that ideological commitment to market forces stripped of moral values that is most important to us. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's, let's go with those. Thank you. As I expected, the LSE has the sharpest and most challenging question, so I'm actually going to stand up because I think better standing up. Okay, you're absolutely right. It's a piece of a jigsaw. This is one thing that we have to do. There's so many things we have to do. Climate is the most urgent, of course. The arms trade is extremely urgent. You probably have projects that you want to push like this. All I'm going to say is, after studying the progress on these kinds of projects, I've actually become much more optimistic, and that is honest. It's not because I'm some sort of Panglossian. Again and again, you see smart, skilled-up NGOs winning David and Goliath battles against even big oil. Um, Let me give you an example. Um, There was a group smart, skilled-up NGO people who wanted greater transparency in the oil industry, which is the most opaque industry in the world, except for the arms industry. So they convinced two senators to introduce a bill into Congress that said all oil companies must report what they pay to foreign governments publicly. Got nowhere. I mean, it was oil, right? They were fighting against big oil. Didn't even get out of committee. No way. But they kept going. They were skilled up. They were ready to go. And their window of opportunity came. It was that terrible big explosion of the oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico. Remember that BP thing that blew up in 2010? It was awful, but it had the silver lining that that summer, 2010, the oil companies were toxic in Washington. They couldn't get their phone calls returned. During that summer, the two senators reintroduced their bill at 11.59 on the last night before the Dodd-Frank Financial (laughs) Reform Act was passed. They got it into law. It became the law of the United States of America. And the best thing about that story is, once one of our countries went first, the other countries followed. So Europe almost immediately passed an almost identical law requiring their oil companies to report all of their payments to foreign governments, and then Norway, and then Canada. And now almost every oil company is going to be... We didn't think we were going to get that transparency for 20 years. But smart NGO activists had their stuff ready to go, and their moment came... If you have a project like this, I I, I think you can be really encouraged. It's a piece of the jigsaw. The puzzle's big, but we just have to keep doing each piece. We are not going to exhaust non-authoritarian oil. There is actually lots of oil in the world, not least because of shale. Shale is everywhere. This is how they put it. The Stone Age did not end because of shortage of stones. Right? It ended because a better technology came along. The oil age is not going to end because of the shortage of oil. It's going to end because we have alternative energy sources which are better than oil, and we should get to those absolutely as soon as possible. Can we have moral values as well as market values? The reason it's helpful to go to the big picture is because we only see the market within the moral frame that we take entirely for granted. If the Saudis were selling slaves, would we have to buy the slaves? Wow. That's like 
God speaking about Donald Trump. <laughs> Might be the first time. If the Saudis were selling slaves, would we have to buy the slaves because it's a free market? If it were better for the United States to take over Haiti as a colony, would we allow that? No. Morality, our political morality, frames the market that we use. The rule that we're using right now for oil is an anti-market law. It says whoever has enough force gets to sell the stuff. Violence vests property rights in our rule, in our world. Violence should violate property rights. The moral frame we should be using is the one that we've already signed up to. It's the people who own the resources. Once we put the market into that frame, then it will seem perfectly natural that the people have to have control of the resources of their own country. And then we can fight the next battle, which is within that frame, within that frame too. Thank you. Okay, we're going to have uh, one more round, maybe two, but I think probably one more round. Um, okay, this young man here in the middle with the tie. Hi. Oh, sorry, two ties. Okay, go on, <laughs> go for it. Unusual uh, at the LSE to have two ties. Okay. Uh, yeah, my name's Oli. So I guess my question really is about how far you take this, how quickly. So say we agreed to this immediately. Do you then also have to agree to stop importing goods that have been made with authoritarian oil internationally? And then what if those goods uh, kind of serve a positive domestic purpose, so say medical supplies? And then what if they serve a positive international purpose, so say a UK charity importing uh, kind of authoritarian oil produced plastic malaria nets to then send to sub-Saharan Africa. Like, where do you, how do you, how do you action that? Thank you. Let's go to the young man right behind who had his hand up for a while. Great. Thank you for a very informative lecture. Um, I'm Min. I work for a uh, hedge fund called M&A Capital Investment. I have a question for you. As you told us that the only way we can solve this crisis is we change our law. But given that all of the countries right now, even the West and um, even the West or U.S. and China are competing with each other economically, and as, the, um, as oil getting cheaper, right, yeah. even if we can switch to another source of energy, we wouldn't because cheap energy is beneficial for the economy. Good. And if we are still competitive with each other like that, what is the chance of us to actually work together? And in my opinion, it's very low. And if it's really low, then um, could we come up with a source of agreement so all the country could work together? Good, thank you. Let me see hands. I'm going to move around. Okay, uh, I'm going to do... I'm going to come back to you. Okay, go to this gentleman, but then I'm going to go to the ladies. Where are my ladies? Uh, thank you. I yeah, have a, um, a short question and um, a comment. Uh, Can you introduce yourself, please? Aziz, I'm a student here. Um, uh, so the question is about the measurement. So if you can elaborate later when you uh, give the points of the practicality of okay. how this will happen. Um, you talked about human rights uh, as a measurement. How, like, uh, will that be the measurement or, dem or democracy or a combination of Thank the you. two? And how will, they, um, uh, um, how will you measure it and who will measure it, an international okay. organization, or, or what exactly will be the measurement? Thank uh, you. My, my short comment slash critique um, is... Uh, Actually, the, uh, many of these uh, uh, oil-rich uh, countries are actually very happy 
in terms of you know anthropological like the measures of happiness and life satisfaction. And what I'm getting to here is that when we look at like the the the, the Gulf states especially, they are uh, very very rich. The oil is not distributed equally. Of course, there's very lots of rentierism going on, but they were very unaffected by the uh, Arab Spring, for example. And Syria, which you you know presented pictures of, is not an oil-rich com- country. It was the the non-oil-rich countries, Egypt, Tunisia, Syria, and the countries that had massive inequality on basis of cities like uh, Libya, Benghazi, and Tarablus, and uh, uh, sectarian lines like Bahrain, that were affected. But uh, uh, otherwise, and yeah, another point is that in many of these countries, actually, unfortunately, the people don't want human rights. And here I'm alluding especially to uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, an extremely authoritarian state, yes, uh, but a state where Honestly, the leadership is more liberal and more accepting of uh, gender equalities, although there is no gender equality in Saudi Arabia, than the actual population, which is more religiously right-wing than the leadership. So to, to, democracy won't necessarily... And the last point I want to make is that um, the practicality of it, because if the U.S. has expanded massive um, energy and resources into uh, uh, getting preferential oil treaties, and uh, 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 unfortunately, that has resulted also in a lot of blood. Um, it, for me, like if, 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 if this is very impractical because like the, the solution sounds impractical and I'm trying to grasp my head around how to be uh, practical because it would uh, uh, lower the competitive uh, advantage of the U.S. in many industries. Uh, which would then endanger the ability of the U.S. to maintain the standard of living for its populace that it okay. currently maintains. So, yeah. Good questions. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Can we have uh, this woman over here, please? And then we'll go back to Leif. Hello, my name is Emily. I'm a master's student here at LSE. Um, my question is related um, and just very quick. How do you, and it's about the practicality as well, how do you... Um, divest from oil in Saudi Arabia or stop buying like oil from authoritarian countries where the U.S. is so deeply involved in other sectors. For example, um, military, like the military is a huge part of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. What happens when all of a sudden we... Saudi Arabia is just an example, but other countries, how do we answer to them when all of a sudden we just cut off that, um, that particular resource how can we maintain relationships and stability in the region um, in doing so? Thank you. Back to you. And we're going to have one more quick round because we're going to get up in the balcony. So, but over to you first to sure. an attempt at those That's very good, good questions. So let me take a couple of the practical ones, and I'm going to try to fold the other ones into an inspiring story. The metrics is important. What's our metric for deciding who we buy oil from right now? What's the measure we use? The measure we use is who has the most guns. Who's in coercive control of the territory? That's our metric. That's our measure. And we can do better than that. We must not give this decision to the Foreign Office. We must not give this decision to the State Department to decide which countries have human rights enough and which countries don't. They would game it, and that would lose us what we need most here, which is the trust of the people of other countries. Luckily, there are metrics that measure exactly what we want to. We're looking for the people to be able to hold their government accountable. We're not talking Norway here. We're talking basic, bare-bones, civil liberties and political rights. Can the people find out about their resources, protest, talk about it with each other, and change what they really don't like about government? There's a lot of metrics that measure that. 
polity has one, foreign policy has one, freedom house has one, and get an aggregate of all the metrics and draw a bright line which countries do and don't have minimal accountability to their people. It wouldn't be perfect, but it would be better than the metric we have now, which is just might makes right. The transition to the new world has to be handled as, as carefully as possible. The diplomacy for this will be extremely tricky. We're going to have to tell our Saudi allies, our old friends, that we're not going to buy their oil at some point in the future, and that's going to be tough. People used to say we need three things from Saudi. We need their oil, we need them to buy our weapons, and we need their cooperation on counterterrorism. We don't need their oil anymore. We will have to give up their buying our weapons. Saudi buys a lot of weapons from the West. A few years ago, it spent 20% of its official budget buying weapons from the U.S. and the U.K. That's more than the percentage of the entire Defense Department. So we just have to give that up. And that does mean lost jobs in St. Louis, for sure. That's a definite cost. Do we need to share counterintelligence? Well, maybe we still could. There's no reason we couldn't still share counterintelligence. My view is that we're mostly sharing counterintelligence information with the Saudis to defend against threats that they helped to create. I mean, this story really is just coming out. It might be the largest ideological campaign of all time, the Saudis spending tens of billions of dollars to spread Salafism around the world, which we now see mutating into jihadi extremism around the world. Put it this way, people worry about Islamic State. There is already an Islamic State. It's Saudi Arabia. The ideology is is very close. So getting out of business with that regime until they get more accountable is the right thing to do. Let me try to get the other excellent questions into a story, which actually is the story I take the most inspiration from of all. The greatest victory over might makes right in history was started just down the road in the city of London in 1787, where 12 Quakers got together in a room and took a vow to each other that they were going to end the Atlantic slave trade. And that was a crazy thing, a crazy thing to say. 1787, Britain was the superpower. Its navy ruled the waves. The mayor of London had been the largest owner of slave plantations in the country. Barclays and Lloyds were lending lots of money to build slave ships. The establishment was deeply entrenched. Even the Church of England owned huge slave plantations, and slave-grown sugar was 5% of the British economy and growing. Hundreds of jobs, sailors and so on, coopers, Shipbuilders depended on the slave trade. Everyone thought that this thing would go on forever. But the Quakers and then the people they convinced and then especially the people of England and especially, especially the women of the North boycotted and petitioned and marched and the men voted for decade after decade and eventually they did get out of business with slavery. The British ended the slave trade in their empire. They then abolished slavery in their own empire, and then they patrolled the Atlantic until they convinced the other slaving countries to stop the terrible trade, too. During that process, all of the objections that you're hearing now were vented. All of these were heard before. Do we have to boycott all blood oil goods, Ali? No. Even the slave trade 
Even while there was this tremendous boycott of slave-grown sugar going on, they still bought slave-grown cotton. We have to pull the levers that we have that are most effective. We can't do all of the things that you're suggesting. We don't have to. We just have to pull the ones that are within our reach. Would we lose our competitive edge if we stopped buying blood oil? When the proposal was to get out of business of the slave trade, someone wrote a letter to the Bristol paper saying, look, if we stop slaving, then the French and the Spanish will continue to slaving and eventually we'll be the slaves of the French and the Spanish, right? But the British did it, and they still got to be the greatest empire the world had ever seen, not least because of their moral leadership. And I have to say, back then, they also heard the objection of happy slaves, which is the analogy to your point. Saudis don't want freedom. They like things the way they are. They don't want rights. They don't want liberties. I myself find that implausible. And I don't think that that's my judgment to make. I think we should leave the judgment to the Saudi people. It's their decision what they want to do with their oil. And if they really do want to give it to their leaders to buy their super yachts and their security forces, or whether the people would actually like to have their oil money for themselves and give it some money to their government at their sufferance. These objections come up every time a step forward is proposed, and they're great objections, and we just have to work through it. But the positive message is the British did end the slave trade, and I'm, I'm glad they did. It was the right thing to do. We could do it again. Thank you very much, Leif. I'm going to draw that to a close.